it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Three films released in 1994 catapulted Jim Carrey from TV sketch comedy to Hollywood superstardom. The preceding year, Jim Carrey had signed to play Ace Ventura for $350,000 and less than 12 months later, after The Pet Detective proved a sleeper hit and The Mask was on its way to becoming the fourth biggest film of the year in the world, Jim Carrey commanded a fee of $7 million for Dumb and Dumber. That wage then doubled for Ace Ventura when Nature Calls the following year and tripled to $20 million for Liar Liar as Carey enjoyed smash after smash. You're listening to the One Sensational Shop Network. This is the Electronic Labyrinth with Luke Littleboy and me, Fletcher Walton. And this issue we're asking, in 2019, what does Carey's success in the 90s mean to us today? What on earth has happened to the Hollywood blockbuster comedy in the last 10 years? And were those original films any bloody good anyway? Luke, who the hell was Jim Carey in 1993? <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, as you touched upon, uh, Canadian kids, suburbs of Toronto made good. And uh, he in the 80s, if you go back and look at his filmography, there's a bunch of films, frankly, I haven't heard of. And uh, he was um, doing his stand-up, big in impressions. That's that's what he um, that's what he was trying to like cut his teeth on. I think Rodney Dangerfield even had him in as his opening act in Vegas for a bit, which is utterly bizarre and something I only found out recently when researching for this show. But it, fast forward to the early 90s, as you say, uh, despite auditioning for Saturday Night Live. He um, became a reg- he didn't get it and became a regular cast member instead between 1990 to 94 on uh, the comedy uh, sketch show In Living Colour. And it's um, not as well documented, of course, as a lot of vintage SNL is, but you can find some stuff online. There's a particular sketch that hasn't aged particularly well, but I would like to point the listeners to. It's a sketch called I'm Gay, which is uh, <laughs> oh, here Jim Carrey. <laughs> Jim Carrey in a line uh, in a fast food restaurant, proudly announcing to the world that he's gay when the rest of the world thinks, yeah, man, it's that's cool, whatever. And uh, I won't go into the details, <laughs> but it is actually the his, his overacting. If, if you if you're most cynical, you could say he overacts, um, which, in fact, uh, on the liar liar outtakes, um, they make some jokes about um, along with the fellow cast members. But the prototype there for what becomes Ace Ventura and what defines his approach, I think, in in the early to mid nineties, is there in in that sketch? So I'd say we'll we'll put a link in the show notes and um, certainly recommend people people check that out. But like you say, um, off the back of In Living Color, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, a pastiche of seventies detective movies, and um, and you can really see the through line from what what he was doing in Living Color, that bombastic larger than life stuff. Uh, in, into Pet Detective, and for whatever reason, it was uh, tickling the funny bone of uh, of America and, like you say, the world, with um, with box office receipts of you know hundred or just shy of one hundred and ten million, which uh, which back then um, was incredible money. Whenever we revisit the past, I'm always interested in who could have made it and then who overshadowed them. It mm. does feel like Jim Carrey's success overshadowed the very reason he was on In Living Colour. He'd met Damon Wayans of the Wayans Brothers on Earth Girls Are Easy. So this is the other thing oh. about Jim Carrey. I think his very early career, there is a feeling as though he burst onto the scene, which is true to an extent, but for a full 10 years, he was knocking about 
doing not particularly much. He did Earth Girls Are Easy with Damon Wayans, Gina Davis, Jeff Goldblum. That was in about 88. A couple of pictures with Clint Eastwood. You can imagine Clint Eastwood finding him hilariously funny because Jim Carrey's uh, brash, broad comedy, I think, it can appeal to all ages, and especially to somebody as buttoned up, or so we mm. suspect, as Clint Eastwood. I can uh, I can feel him, you know, doing a gun finger at him, saying, like, kids hired. <laughs> uh, and uh, much earlier than that middle of the 80s Peggy Sue got married with Francis Ford Coppola Jim Carrey's in that I remember when I was first getting into cinema I was excited to see that film for those two reasons that it was both Coppola and Jim Carrey in an early role for Helen Hunt um, and mm. the, yeah Damon gets in the gig on In Living Colour with Keenan Ivory Wayans and the rest of the Wayans is, 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 is. and of all the people it's Carey that becomes the runaway superstar it's true that Damon Wayans had plenty of success before and after in Living Colour but it does it, it feels it feels a bit like they've been gypped Damon in particular when four or five years afterwards Carey is literally the biggest actor in Hollywood and Damon Wayans is second banana to the Sandman in a B-movie buddy actioner bulletproof by Ernest Dickerson, which is just so-so. I've seen it three or four times. The only person making those action films these days is Adam Sandler. Now he's got his Netflix contract. Having said that, Keenan Ivory Wayne scored a super hit with Scary Movie later on in the decade. We'll come We'll come to that later. Now, you, you asked who were the people... That... There's a few. I've, I've got some yeah. examples. I actually went on a slightly different track, not, not necessarily looking at co- uh, comedy guys, because there weren't many other comedies doing this. So if you think about it in this way, and I know you've got some com- comedy examples, his peers, his contemporaries, but if you think about it in these terms, Ace Ventura um, topped the box office charts um, in, in three non-consecutive weeks. I don't think this often happens anymore now. You have an opening weekend and then you slowly drop down. But uh, it had three um, it was t- three non-consecutive weekends. I think Steven Seagal's film on Deadly Ground um, popped in there at number one uh, just, at, just at one point. The Mask was competing against the likes of Lion King. And these days, if, you, you know, if you've got an animated film... And don't forget, Lion King was, one of, at that point, the biggest animated film of all time. It was yeah. competing against um, uh, The Lion King, Forrest Gump and Black Beauty, still topped the box office. And then beyond that, Dumb and Dumber was obviously a huge grocer at the time and uh, was number one for three straight weeks. Uh, and yeah, as, as, as you just touched on at the beginning of the show, um, his, his salary was widely publicised at that time because just within that, that sort of short 12-month period, he'd, um, he'd, he'd managed to increase it so much. So I was thinking, okay, what other movie stars, leading men at that time, were doing a similar kind of thing? And you've got to look at the likes of a lot of the action stars, like Sylvester Sloan, in 93, had Cliffhanger and Demolition Man, which which both were, were box office number ones. Tom yeah. Cruise in 96, Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire, and then and the likes of Tom Hanks, Saving Private Ryan, You've Got Mail, in, in 98. Uh, and in terms of comedies, I was trying to go through, and as far as I can gather, uh, it's the likes of Kevin Hart, more recently, who uh, in 2014 was in Ride Along and uh, Think Like a Man too. So... In terms of comedy stars, I think you're right. I think this almost segues into what you're thinking about some of his peers, some of his contemporaries, because he, he he's playing in the same arena in that one year as the biggest movie stars of the of the 90s. Having not happened at all for a decade, it all happens very quickly, and that moves into Batman Forever as well. Um, mm. I was looking at the precedents for what Carey did. We know that at the end of the 70s, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder were big draws. 
and Mel Brooks comedies. But then looking through the 80s, it's, the, it's entirely who we would expect were having hit after hit. When we talk about box office, of course, it's not necessarily an indicator of quality. However, some of these are very good films, but it is an indicator of what's in the cultural conversation, uh, the films that actually have eyes on them, which, mm. as we'll talk about later on, there are good comedies being made today, but fewer people are seeing them, and they're falling well outside of the top 20, even top 40 of the box office. So back in the 80s, I'll run through. Eddie Murphy, no surprise there. 82, 48 hours, seventh biggest film at the US box office. Trading Places the following year, the fourth biggest film at the US box office. And then The Crescendo, Beverly Hills Cop, the biggest film of its year, 1984, at the US box office, trumping even Ghostbusters. That's followed by Golden Child at number eight in 86. Beverly Hills Cop 2, which we could include as a comedy. 1987, that came third at the US box office. Raw, the concert movie by Robert Townsend of the same year. Number 20, stand-up for 90 minutes. That Enough people went to see that, that it was the 20th biggest film at the US mm. box office. And I'll interject here because I think one of the reasons comedy no longer has... Comedy at the cinema no longer has the cultural imprint it had 20 years ago, 30 years ago and 40 years ago is because in the 70s and the 80s, if you wanted to see undiluted Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy, you've got their comedy album or you've got their movies. What they do on Saturday mm. Night Live is censored, essentially. Mm. It's still good, but it's censored. If you want to see Eddie with all the Fs and all the absurd gay panic HIV stuff, which is right in there, and whenever any, anybody says... Why isn't Eddie big anymore? I do think, well, some of his shit's unrepeatable and I think he would agree himself that... And Luke, you know I'm very liberal when it comes to what's acceptable in comedy, but there's straight up homophobia in Eddie's shit from Raw and from Delirious. Thing is, mm. it's still really funny. The delivery's superb, but it's, it is unrepeatable. But mm. if you wanted those things, and everyone did, it was comedy album or cinema. Now any other comedy star of the last 15 years that you could name that's in any way edgy, they can say the F on HBO. They can even get away with some stuff on network television. So they've yeah. got that outlet. They or don't the need Netflix, the cinema. Exactly, yeah, and Netflix. Um, Sandman doesn't need cinema at all. And I think that's one of, the, one of the big changes is that television has grown more adult, more mature. And we know this. We talk about this almost every week when we talk about what's successful at the box office and how... Yeah. It seems sophisticated audiences and mature audiences might see six films a year. They might see the big pictures, but they're very happy to take their Game of Thrones, Westworld, Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad. And in terms of comedy, Barry, Eastbound and Down, Broad City, Workaholics, Silicon Valley, At Home. There's almost, there's a, a, a conscious separation now of television is what adults watch. And if you want to get in touch with your 14 year old self, then you go out to the flicks. Yeah, we like the more nuanced drama, like the final season of Game of Thrones. I'm joking, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's been very well documented that Avengers Infinity War, which I'm yet to see. It's the first time, I hasten to add, in my adult life, I think, that I've tried to go and see a film and it's been sold out. The block has been busted uh, for the next two to three hours and I've had to either wait for it or go home and I, I chose the latter. But yeah. it's been well wow. documented that Infinity War is big because it did big in uh, in China, and it's that it's that big emerging market that's now it's is it as big as the US or almost as big? It, it's it's um it's it's there, isn't it? It's on the cusp. Um, and it's if you're going to do well in that Chinese market, it's mostly stuff that doesn't need a lot of translation. 
certainly things that won't get lost in translation. And mm. um, unfortunately, a comedy is culturally speaking very specific to uh, to its country of origin. So I, I think there's an element, and I hate this phrase of "it is what it is." And uh, if you if you do want a, a comedy, whether that be the latest Adam Sandler film or some raw and uncensored stand-up, it will be on your HBOs or, or the Netflix, whatever. I think that, that, that is the way it's going, you're right. Eddie Murphy had a solid 10-year reign at the US box office. His 92 Boomerang by Reggie Hudlin came 18th at the US box office, and it was around mm. that time that Eddie uh, lost his draw. That Then he moves into a brief period, Vampire in Brooklyn. Distinguished Gentleman was not as successful. Came back with The Nutty Professor, which we'll talk about in a moment. So while Eddie is doing that, uh, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray are experiencing great success as well. Um, and this is what I think created a vacuum into which Jim Carrey could propel himself. Because Bill Murray, by the end of the 80s, was largely finished with comedy, as he had been. Uh, he came back with Groundhog Day, but we all know that he became more interested in projects, Quick Change, Mad Dog and Glory, followed up by Rushmore. And when he did return to comedy, aside from Groundhog Day, um, I think The Man Who Knew Too Little is really good, but Larger Than Life is not. As soon as you start making pictures with trained animals, you've got a yeah. one. I'll, I'll quickly tell you, Murray's hits were Caddyshack, 17 at the US box office, Stripes, number five. Here's the one that people would forget, Tootsie. Tootsie, yeah. number two at the US box office for its year. Astonishing. Mm. Followed by Ghostbusters in 84 was number two. Scrooged, 13. Ghostbusters 2 at the end of the decade, 7. And then Chevy, consistent performer. Some of these pictures have left very little cultural imprint, but they're all top 20. Seems Like Old Times, Caddyshack, Vacation, Spies Like Us, Fletch, and European Vacation. Those last three all in the same year, 10, 12, and 14. Christmas Vacation, number 15 at the US box office in 1989. But, as I say... Eddie became less bankable as we entered the 90s. Murray moved away from comedy consciously. And Chevy, too, decided to pivot towards family-oriented cinema. I don't know why he did that. There is a, it's well known that he turned down American Beauty at the end of the 90s because he mm. wanted to be family-oriented, and I don't have a better way to put it. It's a mistake, I think. I'm, I won't even speculate on his thinking behind that. But those three kingpins entering a decline... Steve Martin was still successful. And if we look at some of the big comedies of the late 80s, the same directors come up. Um, it's the names that you would expect. Ivan Reitman, John Landis, David Zucker. Airplane at the beginning of the decade, Ruthless People, Naked Gun, but then moving on to um, a scary movie this century. The scary movie three he was behind. Yeah. Was uh, it the third one? He wasn't part of the first one, was he? Jumped no. in. Later. And, yeah. and that's interesting that Keenan Ivory Wayans was the first one and heavily involved in the second, but then the Zucker brothers take it on for three and four. So mm. looking back to the 80s, Coming to America was number three at the US box office. Big, number four, if you could call it a comedy, I think it's fair to. Twins, number five, that's Ivan Reitman. And the following year, uh, three out-and-out comedies in the top ten. Look Who's Talking, Ghostbusters 2 and Parenthood. 1990, a fewer comedies, only Pretty Woman and Kindergarten Cop, but the same names, Gary Marshall, Ivan Reitman. 91, City Slickers, four comedies in the US box office top ten. City Slickers, Adam's Family, Father of the Bride, and the Naked Gun sequel, Naked Gun Two and a Half, Smell of Fear. And it continues like this into the middle of the 90s, where most years have two or three 
out-and-out comedies in the top 10, and then another four or five rounding out the top 20. I'll give you a a good example of that. 93, Mrs. Doubtfire, mm. Sleepless in Seattle, second and fifth at the US box office, followed by Groundhog Day, Grumpy Old Men, Cool Runnings, Dave, Sister Act 2, all in the top 20. And interestingly, Hot Shots Part 2 was 41 mm. in the US box office, but 17 globally. So there is sometimes that disparity. But I think that yeah. shows into the 90s, comedies were still bankable. And yeah. I think it's as you've said, that overseas money was less important and the cultural specificity to which comedies usually speak and which with which they interact was uh, was still sufficiently high. They had the US market. Now, if we if we fast forward 25 years now, 2018, Crazy Rich Asians, number 17 and 38 globally. And then we're dropping way, way down. Night School with Kevin Hart, 39. Game Night, which I understand is very good, 41. Instant Family by Sean Anders, who's really, the at the moment, the only consistently successful comedy director. Instant Family was 46. Blockers with John Cena, which I hear is fine. 47. Holmes and Watson, which only eight years ago would have been huge. And if we go back to when Ferrell and Riley were uh, bankable at the box office, Talladega Nights was the 12th biggest film of its year. Uh, Step Brothers was the 28th biggest film of its year in 2008. But in uh, the environment of 2018, Holmes and Watson, which is a bad film as well, 90 at the US box office, 103 globally. These comedies have been utterly pushed out of the of the box office top 10, even the top 20, and most comedies now are lurking in 30, 40. The Big Sick, for instance, you and I both enjoyed that to an extent, didn't we? And it felt like it had entered the cultural conversation. 65th biggest film of its year, 65th. I'll give a, another couple of examples. I don't want to uh, beleaguer the listener with too many statistics, but let's pick a picture that feels like it was big. Amy Schumer in Trainwreck by Judd Patel, 2015. Only the 28th biggest film of its year. 28. Spy of the same year. 27. Now, that's Melissa McCarthy. She's what we would consider to be commercially viable. She's bankable when she makes films with Paul Feig. Only the 27th biggest film of its year. And Ghostbusters, even, the following year, only the 21st. Ada McCaffrey's been on the show a couple of times. And mm-hmm. privately, <laughs> privately, I'm sure other people are welcome to the conversation. Um, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't in a soundproof booth. Um... We've chatted about uh, Midnight Run, Beverly Hills Cop, those Martin Breast pictures, those witty, mature, action-oriented adult affairs where people smoked and drank and swore and ate red meat and Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin were a wonderful pairing and Johnny Ashton was knocking (laughs) about. We no longer have those pictures. Uh, And we also, at the same time, while I make that point to Aidan, who also likes Midnight Run, we also, um, we note that comedies have left the box office Top 10, top 20 even, as I said, they're now trawling around in the 40s. Uh, They don't have the cultural resonance they once had. Fewer people are watching them. And I've bemoaned that to Aidan, and he said that he thinks their niche, and you'll see it in Deadpool, in Mm -hmm. Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, which are basically comedy-inflected adventure pictures or action pictures, the same with Deadpool 2. But he feels that that niche is being fulfilled by the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where, again... That's uh, two, two and a half hours, Mm. and it's action-oriented, but there is plenty of humour in there. Um, I find it 
as we've said, it's a humour that can be understood by a, a mixed ability group, is a kind way to put it. Uh, fun for all <laughs> ages, not, isn't it, that's really? That's not a kind way of putting it. It's utterly <laughs> damning, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, th- I think that's what they're fulfilling. So maybe people are getting their comedy fix there, in addition to what we mentioned at the top of the show, which is that if you want sweary comedy, if you want adults being adults around other adults, then there's Netflix, HBO, Mm. Showtime, FX, and uh, the BBC has usually been able to offer that as well. Yeah, true. Nevertheless, I'd like to see a return to comedies uh, hitting harder at the box office. Um, And it's going to happen. Ain't going to happen. No. I, I I don't think that it is. I, I, let's just look. <laughs> let's look briefly at um, now. If you'll remember, about fifteen years ago, when the frat pack made their mark—that's Will Ferrell, Owen Wilson, Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, Vince Vaughn. Yeah. They started making pictures together with Zoolander, followed by Old School. Yeah. Anchorman, Wedding Crashers, and that brought back what was regarded as the R-rated comedy. Mm. After uh, two thousand three, for instance. Fifth biggest film of the year, globally and domestically. Bruce Almighty starring none other than Jim Carrey. Just a couple of years later, Wedding Crashes is the sixth biggest film in the US. 40-Year-Old Virgin is the 19th biggest film. And the following year, Talladega Nights, number 12. Borat, 16. The Breakup, 18. And the year after that, Knocked Up gets to 14. 2008, uh, see, uh, Step Brothers is at 28. You Don't Mess With The Zohan is at 29. But that's Yes Man is 30, and that's uh, part of Jim, Clary, Jim Carey's decline. Where's the booze? I got robbed by a sweet old lady on a motorized cart. I didn't even see it coming. Oh, Harry. No. Harry, no. come on, Harry, you're up. It gets worse, Lloyd. My parakeet, Petey. Huh? He's dead. Oh. oh, man, I'm sorry, Harry. What happened? His head fell off. His head fell off? Yeah, he was pretty old. That's it. I've had it with this dump. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Let's reverse back to those three pictures that made Jim Carrey's name. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, followed by The Mask in the Middle of the Year by Chuck Russell, and at the end of the year, Dumb and Dumber by the Farrelly Brothers. Because mm. you went back and watched them. I watched them earlier in the year just without consideration to the podcast, but you recently viewed all of those again. What did you make of them? Uh, they've you know, aged to varying degrees, I suppose. Um, Ace Ventura is, is and remains a really funny film, and, and it, it does feel like someone's debut album. You know, it, it's, it, it's almost yeah. Jim Carrey's greatest hits before he's even gotten out the gate. Like I alluded to earlier on, the, the, the groundwork he was laying down in Living Colour with his just larger-than-life overacting. It's all there in Ace Ventura. The blueprint was there in, in Living Colour. And uh, it's it, it almost feels like a breath of fresh air because it is so zany and off the wall. Um, the Mask is, in a very similar vein, That that's a film, and that this, this is something that 
I think should be noted. It's a film that had been in development for a very long time and they were trying to find the right kind of tone for it. And it wasn't until Kerry came on board and they went, because the Dark Horse comic is very dark, um, and then they suddenly went for that, more that Tex Avery um, uh, kind of Looney Tunes uh, uh, affair with, with the mask. And um, and, and the, uh, f- for that reason, you know, I think I think that that, that fit felt fresh, obviously, at the time. I was also thinking that between Ace Ventura, The Mask and Dumber Dumber, it's three films that um, were, all, all went on to create animated series and spin-off kids' comics. So at one point, when you got mm. home from school, if you were a kid in the early to mid-90s, you could see three Jim Carrey animated series. Obviously not with him doing the voice, but... But nevertheless, it just goes through the cultural impact that that, that, that those had. I, I I remember writing down in my like school logbook as a kid at primary school that Jim Carrey was my favourite actor at one point. You know, he he appealed to that because with Ace Ventura, of course, he talks out of his ass at one point, and that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so so it, it it appeals. So the mask, obviously, being the um, like I said, that that Warner Brothers thing. So um, it's there. Dumb and Dumb is certainly the more adult. Ace Ventura. The, the climax, the third act, and who turns out to be the big baddie at the end. I'm not sure if that's aged so well with a, with a modern audience, um, but but nevertheless, it's 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 a real triple whammy, um, and I, I think a lot of what Jim Carrey did does on set in terms of imp- improvisation as well. Um, that's something that that's very clear with all three of those films. It's probably why they feel spontaneous. Um, I mean, even though with The Mask, of course, heavily special effects involved. Uh, But all three of those films feel incredibly spontaneous, I think. Who the hell is that? That's a... Heinz gets velvet! I am trainer of dolphins! You want to talk to the dolphin, you talk to me. What happened to the regular trainer? What happened to him? What happened to me? Seven years I am with Siegfried. We are making the dolphins disappear, and then Roy is coming with the white tiger, and the stuffing in the pants, and I'm gone. Where is Snowflake? Why do you care about the dolphin? Do you know him? Does he call you at home? Do you have a dorsal fin? To train the dolphin, you must think like the dolphin. You must be getting inside the dolphin's head and communicating. I'm saying to Snowflake, and he is saying, and you can quote him. All right, it's just about time for Coach Shula's press conference, so why don't I take you folks over that way? We'll let the uh, Heinz uh, go to the conference, go to it. People, people! You owe us, you know. Are you finished, Heinz? Not yet. Those three pictures came out in 1994 and I watched all of them on video in 95 and I was the perfect age and anybody born between about 82 and 86 was the perfect age to see Jim Carrey burst onto the scene and he was probably he was probably the first superstar of my cinematic life where I saw uh, where I was there to see him emerge it was exciting to have those three films as a primer and then be with him as his career developed, immediately followed by a really good turn in Batman Forever, the mm. turn towards darker, more sophisticated fare in The Cable Guy, which is... Let's talk about The Cable Guy for a moment, because I think it... Ben Stiller, who directed it, and Judd Apatow wrote it, Lou Holtz Jr. provided the original screenplay, but Apatow, Stiller and Carey 
I mm. think all of them are are toiling impressively to turn it so that it works within Jim Carrey's skill set. Yeah. Chris Farley was originally mooted for that role, didn't take it. I think it's very good. In spite of Jim Carrey and because of Jim Carrey. Do you see yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I do. Um, I mean, again, it's, it's a script. I was gonna, A point I was going to make about Dumb and Dumber, which is something that doesn't happen now. I was reading a Judd Apatow interview. Um, I'll try and dig it out. I can't remember where it's from. But he was saying that since the last writer's strike, studios don't buy scripts and then tinker with them. Dumb and Dumber is a film that had a different title. It, it, it was developed over a period of years because the script the, it was a spec script. It was purchased and the studio put people on it to tinker with it and get it to a point where everyone was then signed up on board and ready to make it. You know, they were they were scoping it, you know, it, in essence. They were shaping it and crafting it to get it where it needed to be. The Cable Guy is another example where there was you know, a bidding war for the script and then, like like you just alluded to, you got had Chris Farley on board initially, but then Kerry gets involved. Uh, after Kerry's involved, Apatow comes on board as well. Um, and then it's Apatow who suggests they get Stiller. And and before you know it, it's it's gone from what Apatow described as a, a sort of what about Bob annoying friend uh, film to something that's much much darker because all these people go. I don't think that happens in the same way. And in, in the Apatow interview, he talks about how since that writers' strike, they don't want to be betting on the the writers sitting there to create this stuff. It's more it has to come all fully formed. So it has to have a script, a star. A producer on board like everyone's already signed up and it's good almost good to go and then they and then they kind of action it from there so um i mm. think it's it's the sort of film that you, you wouldn't necessarily get now especially a comedy film and and you're right i think when when kerry came on board he was someone who was desperate to, it's it's a shame because i think he was so desperate to to do that more serious sinister role um which he does i don't think he'd quite got there yet with how he wanted to go about that and the dramatic turns he takes more in the Truman Show and, and other stuff later is, I think, um, far more impactful. But um, it does work, and it works um, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the social commentary that they just... Going away from this what about Bob idea of just a kind of annoying um, friend, uh, what they do is, of course, they bring in this social commentary. And in the mid-'90s, it was more around what what does someone do all day uh if they're obsessed with the tv they're obsessed that they live vicariously through the television and they they they're socially awkward they don't have any friends i think you and i have talked about this in the past where you, all you need to do with the cable guy if you want to update it a few years is just kind of swap it out for for, for youtube because it, he, it really feels like the character that carrie's playing feels like one of the creepy guys that's uh, lurking down a youtube uh, comment section you know halfway down and uh, yeah. ripping into people and uh and, and getting a bit getting a bit strange i, th I think it does work because of carrie because half the time i don't even know what he's saying in the film uh, and i think <laughs> that's intentional um I don't think he'd quite nailed that performance yet, but it, it's it's a film that really holds up. And I would say, out of apart from the Truman Show, uh, from what he, from what his output of the nineties, it's probably his finest his finest film. Um, because I, yeah, I, I think there was a lot of good work going on there, and Stiller was um, was the right guy for the job as well. It's, it's a shame that it's a shame it was maligned for the years that it was, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, and it did acceptably now in comparison to what Carey had been producing. Batman Forever was number two at the box office, number six worldwide. Ace Ventura number five, and just to give you an idea, Ace Ventura 2 cost 30 mil, took 212. So when the cable guy costs 47 and only takes half as much, mm. and is only 23 at the box office, you can understand that an industry which loves a backlash mm. and which would is desirous of knocking a fella off his pedestal, who the fuck is this guy? Five box office top tens, and you know, this is outrageous. Mm. Who does he think he is? Um, any opportunity to pelt him with tomatoes will be taken. But um, the cable guy's very good, and it's a, an interesting mixture of uh, Ben Stiller's satire, which has always run thick and is incisive. No, it's not Christopher Morris, but there are few better Hollywood satirists than Ben Stiller. Think about Tropic Thunder, a, oh, a yeah. film that could almost only have been made at that exact cultural point in 2007, 2008, when... America was had the requ- the requisite sophistication to have mature discussions about depictions of race on screen. So mm. everyone was cool enough with race to parody it. That couldn't be made now. It couldn't have been made at any point in the last five years. There are There is a cohort that willfully misunderstands the points that were being made in Tropic Thunder. Um, but so Ben Stiller is a satirist, and I love him as a satirist. Uh, and Jim Carrey isn't a satirist he's a parodist an outlandish brash parodist he parodies a lot of things but he doesn't have the same uh intellectual motors whirring as ben stiller because another way you can see that in the cable guys it's got the satire of oj simpson and the menendez brothers and even if you remember i think it was preceded the louise woodward trial that was one of uh, a slew of trials which made celebrities of the people in the trial oj simpson was already a celebrated athlete and actor when Mm. it came to his trial out out of his trial celebrities were made from judge ito and kato kalin and subsequently trials made celebrities of the defendants of the lawyers as well and stiller does interesting and most importantly very funny work around that in the cable guy Today, his attorneys continue oh, yeah, okay, the defense of twin envy, also known as twin stress syndrome. Hi, I'm Tabitha Soren with MTV News. Today in the Sam Sweet case, the prosecution played the 911 call that Sam Sweet made the night he murdered his brother. Keep in mind, Mr. Sweet confessed one month later. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. My kid brother's been shot. I think it was an Asian gang or something. I saw someone. He looked Asian, and he was speaking another language. I'm pretty sure it was Asian. Tonight on UPN, the trial that's captured the nation. Everybody is waiting for the verdict, but you don't have to wait for the movie. Cry, baby. I love you. You have always been such a Sammy, Sammy, don't. Look who's crying Eric Roberts is Sam and Stan Sweet in Brother, Sweet Brother, The Killing of Stanton Sweet. Parental discretion advised. Judd Apatow, who was involved in The Cable Guy, produced it. He is one of Carey's key collaborators. We'll just take a check of that quickly. One of Carey's longest-standing relationships is with Steve Udekirk. They made a film together called High Strong in 92, where they met. Udekirk was then brought on board to 
write Ace Ventura. He directed Jim Carrey on When Nature Calls, and then mm. Oudekerk was back for Bruce Almighty as writer and producer. So that's one of the important collaborations. The other is Tom Shadiak. That's a superstar director that he had, who was huge in the 90s with The Nutty Professor, Ace Ventura, Liar Liar, and Bruce Almighty. Again, Bruce Almighty, fifth biggest film of the year in the world. A comedy. Mm. 484 million. The Farrelly brothers have also been there with Jim Carrey, Dumb and Dumber in the sequel, Me, Myself and Irene, which I don't like. But Judd Apatow produced The Cable Guy, produced Fun With Dick and Jane, which is one of Carrey's last best successful comedies. It was mm. 18 at the US box office, 19 globally, cost 100, took only 202. It was a success, although I've only seen it the once. And um, Judd Apatow produced Anchorman 2 as well, in which Jim Carrey cameos. Yeah. Fun With Dick and Jane, a film that... Um... Lex never got because she said that uh, they didn't get their comeuppance in the end. She found that to be odd. I said, yeah, but corporate yeah. America gets its comeuppance. Um, but anyway, that's a fun, uh, an interesting one. Uh, based on a, an old uh, 60s TV show as well. But you're right, that's probably the last... I think it's, no, it's a, I think it's a 70s George Seagal film. Oh, is it? Which has a, a greater cultural currency in America than it does here. Yeah, Like yeah. when they remade The In-Laws and people... Uh, Americans know the 1970s picture, The In-Laws, with Peter Falk. <laughs> and they don't know the version that was made with Albert Brooks and Michael Douglas. Something I realised going line by line, film by film, through Jim Carrey's oeuvre. Uh, and I'm sure that the French would study it like that, would describe <laughs> it as such. <clears throat> is the amount of times that he plays someone playing someone. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to me. Whether it's intended it's, or not, yeah. He, he, there's yeah. a Ch Charlie Rose interview in 2001 uh, where he talks about this. And I think Truman shows the obvious example. And he talks about how at that point in his career he'd had his string of hits. He therefore could really relate to, to, the, to the role he was playing in the Truman Show. This, this guy that was living a, a life within a life, if you like. Mm. Um, and around that time as well, there's the Andy Kaufman biopic, Man on the Moon, where... Um, one of the things that I, I, when he was making that film, one of my favourite anecdotes is that Andy's sister told him, this is all in the Charlie Rose interview, that um, Andy had been rejected by the world. So he decided to create a club of his own, basically, that he wouldn't let anyone else be a part of. And of course, um, <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, you know, a Andy Kaufman's whole shtick was around is this guy playing a role or is, 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 is he really doing this? And uh, his most basic, his stand-up act was, was obviously around, does this guy even speak English? You know, what joke is he trying to do here? Um, mm. And uh, Jim, when he was doing the biopic, obviously lent into that completely. Uh, if you hit up Netflix, there's the Jim and Andy making of documentary, which is consists of footage of when he was filming Man on the Moon and he was was just completely method acting and disappeared into the role of Andy Kaufman and people could only address him as such. Uh, a lot of the footage, there's a wealth of footage that they craft that documentary about which came out a few short years ago. And, uh, of course, the studio famously uh, commissioned that to be a making of at the time, a contemporary making of to promote the picture. But uh, we're worried it made him look like a complete arsehole. So it's 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 interesting. Um, Personally, I think that may still be a put on. The world Andy Kaufman explored in his stints in professional wrestling exploited the astounding potential of kayfabe, mm. which is playing baddie wrestlers. And wrestlers still have that today, where there are baddies and there are goodies and yeah. heel turns. And during the making of Man on the Moon, it was publicised that 
Jerry the King Lawler, a wrestler from the 70s and 80s who subsequently became a wrestling commentator in the 90s and still is today, had fallen out with Jim Carrey on set because of Jim Carrey's diva behaviour, staying in character, pretending to be Kaufman all of the time. Mm. And it was reported in trade magazines and newspapers that Jerry the King Lawler had roughhouse Jim Carrey, put him in a neck brace, that they'd fallen out. All of that was exactly what was reported in the 80s between mm. Andy Kaufman and Jerry the King. That's true. And all of that was a put on, all of that was staged. And it wasn't until years later that it was properly uh, that it was properly understood. And th- they kept it secret because... And that's the... Listeners who aren't aware of what was WWF and is now WWE may not be sensitive to the uh, fantastic and slightly challenging theatricality of its of its performance mm. and of its presentation. Uh, what I'm saying is that Jerry and Andy, just as they would have done if they were wrestling, out in public on talk shows in the early 80s, they agreed between themselves to stage their falling out and to stage a beef. Yeah. And then Jim Carrey and Jerry the King did the same thing in the late 90s during the recording of Man on the Moon. Or did they? I'm still not certain. I'm still not certain. <laughs> but the other thing about professional wrestling, I'll drop it in briefly, is that um, those of us who've watched WWE for the last 10, 15 years, and I've had to because it was part of my job for a long time, was interacting with that. Monday Night Raw and Friday Night Smackdown, and I'm doing these shows at 2 and 3 in the morning. All you need to know about the way Trump runs his administration can be seen in the WWE. Without uh, uh, without yeah. exaggeration, because no, Trump and McMahon are cut from the same cloth. Vince McMahon runs the WWE as Trump now runs his administration. Um, it's it's all there, and so wrestling fans were well ahead of the curve on this. They, as soon as Trump was announced, they knew yeah, this is how it's going to be because he believes in strongman leaders. Him and Vince are peas in a pod. Yeah. There was a wrestler, uh, we're going off on a massive tangent now, there was a wrestler, wasn't there, who became governor? of a, uh, Where was that? It was before the... Oh yeah, Predator star Jesse Ventura yeah. in Minnesota. And didn't that become the case study that Trump uh, based his campaign on? And he, Oh he's... gosh. Yeah. Jesse wouldn't like that. I just, I'll take a moment to say, uh, Jesse Ventura is a particularly interesting, heartening example of how uh, how people can defy expectations. Now we talk about WWE wrestlers, and I think it. I wouldn't be surprised if most people listening to a film co- podcast would presume that they're kind of meatheads. They may be aware of John Cena, and John Cena is doing fantastic comedy work now, and uh, the, the Rock as well. But most people's interaction with wrestling is simply Hogan, Dwayne Johnson, yeah. and John Cena. Jesse Ventura. I'd like to mention this. Um, Jesse went on to be a governor. He's he's vaguely libertarian, but generally speaking, he's liberal, he's left-leaning. I read with interest and affection an anecdote that Jesse brought up when he was talking about gay marriage. And this is how people can defy expectations. He said that he made his mind up about gay marriage when in the 80s he noticed that wrestler friends of his were in the hospital and their boyfriends, their partners, couldn't visit because they weren't family. Right. And I really like that real world example of someone yeah. who Jesse comes from a military background and um, we might presume that professional wrestling is a right wing masculine environment. And certainly Vince McMahon is of that bent. But to see that in to, to have that real world example of someone who looks upon an, in, an injustice and thinks, 
that's just wrong. I, I, how could I, how could I oppose this when I see how wrong it is that this man can't see his boyfriend? That's what I have to say about professional wrestling. Two things: Trump and Jesse. <laughs> but we need to get back to. Um, oh yes, the duality. Of course, that's what we were talking about. Yeah. I, well, yeah. Going yeah. Through, even going, going back. Filmography. Even going back to Ace Ventura. You're, you're, something that you you've touched upon when when we've talked about it in the past is that even with that first film, yeah, you think okay, he's a comedy detective or whatever, but even that seems to be a role. He's uh, he's better. He has one or two moments in the film where he. You, you can see that the, the serious man behind the persona and yeah, uh, yeah. In, a lot of the time he's playing up to this uh, this audience which doesn't respect him and doesn't believe in him so he plays up to that and then he knows that he can outsmart them uh, uh, in their own uh, whether it be the police whatever he can outsmart them at a later date you know so um, yeah, it's, it's that a kind of a punk mentality wherein you want an idiot you think I'm an idiot well, I'll give you an idiot there's always a performance aspect to it I don't even know if Ace Ventura is his real name in canon. Surely no one's name is Ace, and it's certainly not Tom Ace, anyway. But, um, yeah, there's there's always a performance aspect to it, and I think we know where that comes from. It's, uh, it's a, a defensive move to repel people on one's own terms, is mm. what I'm saying. Uh, and you get that in Ace Ventura. The mask has duality. Stanley Ipkiss becomes the mask. Yeah, Dumb and Dumber's a straight dumb, role. You d- Dumb and Dumber is straight, I would say, yeah. Um, and then the Truman Show is the obvious example. But even going through to uh, Bruce Almighty, of course, you know, a man who wants to play yeah. God and liar, liar, um, a, a, a father who desperately wants to kind of break outside of the the cage that he's made himself, I guess, through his career. Um, and I know yeah, that that, yeah. that that was certainly an attempt at. Um, there's a documentary on the DVD where they talk about bridging the comedy divide, where um, Jim Carrey was quite aware that he had uh, created this. Out, outlandish persona for himself uh, in the 90s and then Liar Liar by 97 was this attempt to kind of bridge this divide as uh, he was trying to come down to earth a little bit and, and have a, a more uh, down to earth normal kind of kind of role but yeah I would still say there's an element of duality there and um, even um, even going into the level of um, saying what you really think I guess is another is another um, aspect of Liar Liar so it's that kind of it's it's the onion, right? The the man within the man within the man, and and then when you get yeah. to the core, that's who you really are. And then you see it as well in me, myself, and Irene. Series of unfortunate events. Kick ass two as well. Incredible Burt Wonderstone, which sunk. I checked the box office on that. Cost twenty two, took twenty seven, one hundred and three, number oh, one hundred and three. Wow. When you're on box office mojo, and you control F type in incredible and can't find it anywhere and realize holy shit i need to click to the next page (laughs) neither of us are wondering why it is that jim carrey no longer holds the stardom that he had 20 years ago although i think he is still a big name the reason is his his diminishing returns he fell outside of that box office top 10 then outside of the top 20 yes man number 30 in the US box office in 2008. The reason for that is that it's an inferior film and that his star was on the wane. And I think mm. he was aware of that. And uh, it's continued to... It plummeted to the lows of The Incredible Burt Wonderstone, which I understand is a pretty good film. Um, I don't know what... 
I, I can't imagine that Sonic the Hedgehog is going to be something of a resurgence, but I, I don't want to go into that. So he's fixed. I think beyond the the thematic element of the films that we were just talking about, he's fixated on this element of duality. So like I keep alluding to the Charlie Ross 2001 interview, he talks about that at, at some length. And I, I know there's more recent anecdotes where it does seem that he's going, and there's so many interviews with him on YouTube, it does seem like he's gone through some sort of spiritual awakening whether he's had some psychedelic drugs or whatever, I have no idea. But he talks about... Uh, there's a, a Guardian article where he's... Um, uh, the Guardian journalist finally get, manages to meet him and uh, um, he talks about what Jim mentioned to him and in this brief moment. And he talks specifically about duality and he explains that there is no you, I, we or us. We are everything. There is no we. We are objects but there are no objects. We are table and the table is us. And then I think Judd Apatow uh, ushed him out of the room or whatever by that point. But my, my <laughs> it, gets, it, gets, it gets out there. <laughs> you, um, I find this with autodidacts. Jim Carrey dropped out of school at 16. And I find among individuals who couldn't continue their education but had intelligence and genuine interest and intrigue with the world, they... Uh, they fall victim to humbug often because whereas we got into mad conspiracy theory stuff when we were 14, 15, 16 and it was out of our system by the age of 21 and leaving university, uh, I think they're less that they still have the open hearted and open minded approach of people who want to learn, are, are desperate for knowledge. Mm. But they don't have the critical. They don't necessarily have the critical faculties of an emotionally and uh, intellectually mature adult to separate bullshit and not bullshit. And mm. I think that's one reason why Carey has involved himself in the anti-vaxxer movement, because I I can see why he'd be susceptible to it. Because um, it's exciting to think you know things that other people don't. Mm. And that's, I think that's the simplest way to put it. And Carey's withdrawn from big film roles, but not from public life over the last five or six years. And every so often, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, there's in, we find out that he's been painting obsessively and mm. producing decent art, from what I understand. Or that he's recorded a YouTube video in support of Emma Stone, I think it was. It was an odd one a couple of years ago. Uh, I don't know what the future holds for him. I mentioned I don't think Sonic the Hedgehog is going to be any kind of comeback, although it will probably reintroduce his shtick from 25 years ago into uh, into pop culture again, maybe yeah. younger. But I don't understand. I don't keep up with video games, man. But do 15 year olds play Sonic the Hedgehog? When I was 15, that game was on the way out. Sonic uh, the feel. Hedgehog. Speaking as a Sonic the Hedgehog fan, uh, it's um, had a couple of. Um kind of peaks uh, since the 90s. So in the early 2000s, there was a big peak uh, with the launch of the Dreamcast and then when they started making Sonic games for other non-Sega consoles because Sega yeah. stopped making hardware. So he had a whole new audience when they were releasing uh, Sonic games on on like the Game Boy, for example, and that kind of thing. So there's been a couple of peaks, but but in answer to your question, no. His Sonic star has been on the wane for the past five to ten years, certainly. And this Sonic the Hedgehog film is something that baffles me, uh, to be honest with you. That I know there's passionate audience, uh, there is a passionate hardcore audience for Sonic, but they don't even seem to be playing to that audience because they've um, completely 
screwed up the character design and stuff when the whole the whole of uh, reddit seems to be all a flutter around that so but you're right maybe it will at least introduce his his shtick to, to some of the, some of that audience again but i don't know i i, I can't like like you say i can't imagine being 15 year olds who are going to be going to see that film hmm it's difficult to know what audience it could possibly be for when its audience needs to take half a billion for it to be considered successful Mm. we're looking at yeah four to five hundred million for a f- that's that's the limit these days isn't it that's the, the what did solo take in the end uh it's it's abysmal it was um something <laughs> like, it was something like um 350 million it was it was really yeah. really poor uh for a star wars film it was i think it was like attack of the clones levels and that's not even adjusting for inflation i believe like it's um yeah it's it, it was really poor and that's the problem. Lucas and Spielberg predicted a lot of this a few years ago. This is why I think Lucas cashed his chips in as well and sold it because he's nothing if not a shrewd businessman. He knew that the going was good, and this was if he was going to do do it ever. This now was the time, and uh, I think he he knows full well, and he's gone on record and said, um, as has Spielberg, that a lot of films now have to make a billion. To, to, to in order to be deemed successes in order to get that return on investment for the uh, the corporate stakeholders um, uh, the, the, these movies they can't they're too big to fail they and I remember a lot of people talking about it with the third Pirates of the Caribbean because that at that point was the most expensive film ever made and there was this realization yeah. oh gosh yeah yeah, yeah. there was this realization that these films now were so top heavy they had to they had to um, to make a billion um so yeah, you're yeah you're absolutely right. It's um, I don't know what what the Sonic the Hedgehog audience is where where that's going to be and if it's going to find that audience. Um, and it's interesting to know where Kerry's going with this. Uh, with seeing a lot of these interviews with him now, it doesn't even seem like he's into making movies. So I don't understand why uh, he he's taken this on. I can only imagine it's as a paycheck. Uh, although he obviously will talk extensively about how um you know material wealth doesn't mean as much to him now and 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 the older that one gets but um i can only imagine there's a there's there's a reason for it or maybe some some uh managers agents whoever it might be pushed him in that direction and said dude you can do this dr robotnik stick standing on your head just uh yeah just turn up yeah Turn up and take the money. He was a 20 million man in the 90s, and I wouldn't be surprised if they've thrown that in his direction as well. Maybe he's gone for points. But uh, if I were him, I'd take the fucking upfront, Jesus. Because that, you know, as we've said, that could take that could take 800 million, including China. That could take 300 million. Mm. That could take 100 million. I just, I can't, I, I... I but can't I generally. That I'd, I'd, it, if it was my friend, I'd say, "What are you thinking?" Yeah, Th- there's no way to come out of this looking well. Although there, there could be a way to come out of it looking wealthy. We're going off on a uh, bit so, of a tangent, but I, I don't understand why, with films like that as well, they they do take such a risk. So you you want to you go for a property that's bankable. But I think what if the Marvel universe, whatever, has taught us anything. Is that people basically just want to see the comics on screen? That's yeah. all. That's all people are really interested in. Um, so I find it very surprising when things they do radically change um, character designs, art direction, a whole aesthetic. When 
really all anyone wants to see um, is, uh, you know, you think about, like, I know it sounds silly, the Mortal Kombat film. At the time, that was deemed sort of an okay film because you had, in terms of video game movies, uh, whilst we're on that subject, so you yeah. you've, you have, um, like, the Mario Brothers movie, which is sort of the first time they'd tried to do um, a film based on a specific video game. And, of course, it had barely anything to do with the video game. It was just a few character names, nods to design and plot, but, but not really. It was completely its own thing. So then you go from that to Street Fighter, which, which sort of does it a little bit better, but really and truly, it's not about a fighter tournament or anything. It's, it's essentially just an early 90s action flick, just with some of the same characters in it who happen to be in a video game called Street Fighter. But mm. then the Mortal Kombat film at the time, people thought was all right. It's it's the first time they actually thought, you know what? Let's just whatever's on the in the video game, let's whack that on screen. And they kind of yeah. they, they don't dick about with characters or designs or anything like that. The plot is pretty much, um, I think, as the game is. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why these things. Because that's all anyone wants to see, and that's why Sam Raimi's Spider Man worked. Because instead of trying to change the origin story or change the character design or whatever, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man took ripped from the pages, 1960s Spider-Man as you knew him, obviously just updated the setting to modern day New York, but didn't lean into that. It was it was just because that's when the film was made. And, uh, you know, it, it, that's what people wanted. Hmm. So I don't yeah. I don't understand why uh, why people do these things make these decisions after you've gone to all that effort to acquire that intellectual property and make the film why are you then going to change it it could, I suppose it can be considered low risk because the Sonic movies production budget is around ninety mil in terms of advertising they may be able to pull their punches and spend less because it's Sonic to an extent there being a Sonic film advertises itself word of mouth even negative word of mouth that we've seen reminds an audience that it's out there. So spending 90 mil does make it relatively low risk. The same kind of low risk that um, Mortal Kombat, the the 90s picture you were talking about by the other Paul Anderson, uh, that cost about 18 mil and took well over a hundred. So yeah, a return of five or six times its production budget is well worth it. But that's what it seems like to us. It seems like to us maybe you spend 90 on Sonic, it brings in 300, you've made three times your production budget, bully for you. But, as you say, and they're north of 800 and 900 consistently, executives who greenlight Sonic will, in their coke-addled dreams, be thinking, this will be the one, this will be the one that makes my name. No one would have thought that Sonic could make that. I'll spend 90 million, no one would have thought I could take a billion, but it will take a billion. This will be my billion. I will be that guy. Sonic Universe. Sonic and Tails Universe. Let's bring it all the way back, though, to um, it's my intention with this issue of the Electronic Labyrinth to open the floor for a conversation about Hollywood comedy. I understand that one of the purest expressions of a comedian's ability will be their stand-up. And so if comedians stick to Netflix specials like they used to do HBO specials, that perhaps that's the way in which the audience wants to consume comedy. And I, I respect as well that if you want to see Bill Murray be funny, Ghostbusters isn't the best way to do that. Groundhog Day, maybe, but they're still through, it's still those comic minds through the prism of cinema when perhaps the purest way to enjoy Bill Murray is a stripped back basic project like Stripes or 
Saturday Night Live sketches from the late 70s and early 80s. Maybe. Mm. And maybe the best way to see Eddie Murphy is always going to be raw and delirious. And the best way to see Kevin Hart may be his stand-ups as well. When we began this issue, when we began research for it, I honestly thought we'd be talking about the three Jim Carrey films and maybe a little bit of Man on the Moon and a little bit of The Cable Guy. But it set me and Luke thinking more about the state of Hollywood comedy, where it was in the 80s, the... the uh, colossal box office that Jim Carrey generated in the 90s and where we've fallen now where so I mean the big comedy director names of the 80s I mentioned a few of them but Gary and Penny Marshall Ivan Reitman John Hughes John Landis I think they still have currency today Uh, however today's biggest comedy directors Peter Siegel Rawson Marshall Thurber Sean Anders I would be surprised Luke if you knew three films by those people you may not even know those names at all and yet those are the comedy directors whose films Mm. are making the most money yeah 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 so where are where are we at with comedy cinema please get in touch with us and the way to do that is to go to onesensationalshot.com there's a contact form there so you can get in touch with us quite easily indeed of course we are on the social medias we're on facebook if you search one sensational shot we're on twitter at one sensational there's also an instagram as well uh, and there's one sensational shop if you search for that on eBay. But if you go to onesensational.com, it's all there. If, of course, you're listening on iTunes, please do leave us a review. That does help more people discover the podcast and makes us feel good inside about ourselves. Uh, and beyond that, of course, there's also other ways to listen to us. You might be listening on Spotify. You might be listening on Stitcher. But wherever you're listening, do tell your friends. Thanks very much indeed. This has been Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton on behalf of the One Sensational Shot Network here on the Electronic Labyrinth Podcast, signing off. Alrighty then.